This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is another one on personality disorder. So we've been talking about narcissistic personality disorder. We've done a couple of episodes on that, had a couple of guests on that. I think from what I've heard from listeners, it's been helpful and they've learned a lot and it's been interesting. So we're going to, on this one, I'm going to just do one more kind of an overview of the main personality disorders. So first of all, let's talk about a personality disorder. So personality disorders are a class um, in the diagnostic and statistical manual kind of on their own. And they're a class of mental disorders that are characterized by enduring maladaptive patterns of behavior, beliefs, inner experience, and they're exhibited across many contexts. A lot of the thinking behind personality disorders is that they're connected to or related to intense childhood trauma. Um, So they start to develop as the personality is developing. Whereas like other mental health disorders like depression or anxiety, we would talk more about like how a person has that and that's part of what they're struggling with. With personality disorders, we talk about it more and I'm not saying that this is the right way to talk about it, but I would say in the field, we talk more about it like this is part of the person. Like I said, it because it's happening in early childhood and happening as the person is developing and growing up, it disorganizes the personality and kind of mixes in with it, I guess is the best way to say it. Now, that doesn't mean that anybody who has childhood trauma develops a personality disorder. That's not, that's not the case. And I don't know that we really understand why maybe some people develop a personality disorder and others do not. It may have something to do with the level of childhood trauma. That's one of the theories. Although there's people who have experienced some very severe childhood trauma and they don't necessarily show up in a personality disorder category. They may have, you know, mental health issues um, related to the childhood trauma, but they're not necessarily showing up as a personality disorder. So we're going to talk about today, we've talked about narcissism. I'm going to talk just a little bit more about that. And then we're going to talk about some of the kind of the main ones. There's there's several different. I'm not going to get into histrionic personality disorder. Just briefly, histrionic personality disorder is one in which the person has extreme, we would call this kind of the uh, the drama queen, right? Now, often it is diagnosed more frequently in females than males. And that doesn't mean that anybody who is a drama queen has histrionic personality disorder, but this person has an extreme display of emotions. They usually kind of hover close to the surface. They're not necessarily a person of depth. In relationships, they may think that they're more connected to somebody than they actually are. Um, But again, it's this inaccurate or it's this way of viewing the world that isn't necessarily connected to reality or that most people would see it and experience the world the same way somebody with histrionic personality disorder would. So most of the personality disorders, the ones that we're going to be talking about, and that includes histrionic, even though I'm not necessarily including that. So we're going to be talking about borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. So all of these are abusive disorders. If you're in a relationship with somebody who has one of these disorders, you're going to experience abuse in that relationship and from that person. But they fall on a spectrum, right? So at either end of the spectrum is sensitivity. So at one end of the spectrum is this hypersensitivity, right? So borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder are subject to being triggered and respond with extreme energy to a small event or observation. So they're they're on the spectrum of this hypersensitivity. They're overly sensitive. Um, But we're going to talk about how it looks differently for the two disorders. At the other end of the spectrum is an insensitivity. So those with antisocial personality disorder, they have, they're lacking sensitivity, right? They don't have empathy. They don't have remorse. They don't really have a conscience. 
And then, like I said, it falls on a spectrum. And so they're not just clear cut, right? You could have borderline who exhibits some narcissism. You can have narcissism that crosses into antisocial. Um, so they're not these clear cut categories where they don't blend with each other. So I'm going to be using some material. I have this great little book that I was turned on to a couple, several years ago, and I've referred a lot of people um, to this book. It's a very easy read. You know, you could read it in one day. It's very simple. It's very succinct. It's called Meaning from Madness. And the author is Richard Skerritt. And it's a great little book that kind of gets into this. So in the book, the author posits that bipolar and narcissistic personality disorder are actually the same basic disorder and that the difference between the two are different coping strategies and different levels of function or this different ability to successfully cope. So it doesn't mean, when I say that it's a successful way of coping, it doesn't mean that it's a healthy way of coping, just that they have coping skills, right? So both of these disorders are driven by this constant, deeply motivated drive to find safety in their lives by avoiding things that cause or that would trigger fear or shame. Both have a complex wounding, both have a complex trauma history. And they perceive the judgment of others as this extreme threat or this danger state, so much so that it's really terrifying to them. Um, Now, with a borderline person, you are going to see the terror. It may not look exactly like terror, but you're going to see it a little bit more, where oftentimes the narcissist looks a little bit more cool or collected, even though if you get to really know them, you'll be able to tell what's going on with them. You you can be able to spot it. Also, because they order their world differently than the average person, the way they perceive the events around them may mean one thing to them and to the average person, it's pretty insignificant, right? So they may be getting triggered by and responding to events that other people wouldn't necessarily see as an issue. And so that can be something that that kind of throws people off. Both bipolar and narcissistic personality disorder have this fundamental dynamic of fear. So with both disorders, they rely on a particular type of interaction to maintain their feelings of safety, and they're hypersensitive to what they perceive to be a threat to to that safety. So in bipolar personality disorder, the key relationship is a committed partner that provides safety. However, for the borderline personality person, they have a hard time trusting or believing that such a person actually exists. So this is kind of, you'll hear these phrases like, um, I hate you, don't leave me. Those kinds of things where their stability is very much structured around having somebody who is there for them and who loves them. And at the same time, they don't believe that they're actually lovable or that somebody is not going to abandon them. So there's this great fear of abandonment. And so for people who are in a relationship with them, family members, friends, partners, there is this real disorder to the relationship because you are a significant person in their life, but they actually are thinking that you're going to abandon them at any time. So there's a lot of testing. There can be some really cruel things said kind of as a test to the people in their life, but really it's this, it's being driven by this fear that they're going to be abandoned. So like I said, it can be unleashed by anything that suggests that their committed partner will abandon them. And again, the partner may not see in any way that the behavior or family member, friends, right? They may not see that the behavior is suggesting that they're going to abandon them, but because the borderline is so um, hypersensitive to those messages and they're always on the lookout for that, they're going to find those. A narcissistic personality disorder, on the other hand, finds safety within a group of people where the narcissist believes that he or she is perceived as being without flaw. So the same kind of frightening and powerful fear reaction is unleashed by anything that might suggest or hint that somebody's aware that the narcissist isn't perfect, right? That they may have flaws, that they're not, that they're imperfect just like other people. So both disorders are based in a fundamental belief that the world is threatening and that there needs to be this hypervigilance in order to protect themselves. 
Now, narcissists tend to build a strong barrier or boundary around themselves to protect from these threats, right? So when I'm talking to family members who are dealing with narcissistic abuse, or sometimes even when I'm talking to a narcissist, right? I may say to them, you are neurobiologically so boundaried, right? So this means like in your brain, you are so boundaried, not healthy boundaries, mind you, but you are so boundaried that nothing gets through, right? And that's how the narcissist protects themselves. So the narcissists tend to build this very strong barrier or boundary, whereas borderlines tend to be more defenseless. So again, this is some of the, where the author of this book was suggesting that these are actually the same disorders, but they vary based on how the person, the individual is able to cope or be successful at protecting themselves, right? So a borderline personality disorder is much more defenseless. And so these messages get through. They're constantly thinking that I'm not good enough, which is why people are going to abandon me, which is why the tri- the, the fear gets triggered. Whereas narcissists, right, have that um, protective boundary that says, I'm great, I'm wonderful, everybody should be lucky to be with me. They're not necessarily a healthy person to be in a relationship with, but they're better at um, protecting themselves from some of those triggers. Borderline personality disorder, it's currently conceptualized as an intense instability in mood, affect, and relationships. Now, I, I have clients all the time sometimes who will be reading things online, they'll Google things, or they'll come across this diagnosis and they're thinking, and they'll come in, right, and say, am I a borderline? Like, I can have this intense instability in mood and it affects my relationships and it affects my emotions, right? And oftentimes, I do think we're going to get into this. I do think borderline is maybe overly diagnosed and we're going to talk about that. But if something currently traumatizing or has been consistently traumatizing in your life, right? So I work sometimes with partners who are experiencing betrayal trauma. And they've been dealing with this sex addiction or this pornography addiction in their relationship for maybe a decade or or more, right? And yes, they're going to look somewhat similar, right? Where little things trigger them. There's this intense instability in mood. Their emotions can, you know, just kind of overly react. And the relationships are very disordered and disorganized. However, like we can put our finger on and say, this is what's happening and this is what's been happening that has traumatized you, right? Now, it's a significant trauma and it's affecting your nervous system. It's affecting your way of functioning, right? So that's true, but there's a reason for it, right? Whereas in borderline personality disorder, a lot of times there's there's nothing really to explain what's happening, right? So they're going to respond to something that really is insignificant, right? It's not the addicted partner saying, you know, doing the gaslighting and saying you're crazy. It's a small threat. It's something insignificant, but to them, it becomes very, very significant. So Borderline is named for the borderline, right, between psychosis and neurosis. Psychosis basically is this, like we talk about a psychotic break, right? This person who loses touch with reality is experiencing some psychosis. Somebody with neurosis is more likely to, like they don't con- they don't completely break connection with reality, but they're dealing with extreme stress, extreme emotional disturbance. But there may be like betrayal trauma may fall into, right? We don't usually use these words neurosis anymore. They kind of come out of the, I think the 18th century. So I'm not going to diagnose if I have to diagnose a client, right? Which we can do another episode on diagnosis, but we're not going to diagnose somebody with neurosis, right? We kind of have these other categories that are more applicable and that we know more about. That's where borderline gets its name, right? It's that border between those two. Distinguishing traits of borderline personality disorder include disturbance in self-image, right? So that's that I don't ever feel like I'm good enough or lovable and I believe people will leave me. Chronic feelings of emptiness. Um, So oftentimes like somebody with borderline personality disorder, they'll kind of create, it looks like to other people, right? That they create 
conflict and they create drama just so that they can kind of thrive off of that because otherwise they connect with that feeling of emptiness. People diagnosed with borderline experience chaotic interpersonal relationships and intense fears of abandonment. Now, I have to say here that like most human beings have a fear of abandonment, right? If if you believe what Brene Brown's research says, we're wired for connection, right? We do know that like many mammals as human beings, we're kind of these pack animals, right? And we like to move in relationships and to move with groups. And so that's normal for us. This fear of abandonment, right, is going to be devastating to even the average, right? Even the most high functioning human being is going to experience setback if there's an abandonment. So this goes above what's normal, right? There's a normal for most human beings, and this goes above it where they're going to perceive abandonment when abandonment really isn't on the horizon. So there can be impulsive self-damaging behaviors like reckless driving, spending money, sexual activity, Um, Self-injury and suicide attempts are also characteristic traits. Oftentimes, I will say when I've worked with a borderline personality person, their suicide attempts are not necessarily this wanting to die, although that could be the case, right? But it's more of this extreme measure that they take to try to engage somebody or get them to connect with them in a way that says, okay, they're not going to leave me. They won't abandon me because I'm so helpless or I'm so defenseless. Now, borderline affects about 1.6% of the population of adults in the United States. And those who develop this mental health issue tend to begin displaying signs in late adolescence or early adulthood. Someone with, with borderline may beg, they may cling, they may start fights, they have jealous rages, they may block a person from leaving, right? Even if this is like, I've got to go to work, that's all I'm doing is I'm trying to go to work, right? But they perceive what's ever happening is that you're going to go to work and then you're not going to come home and you're going to leave me. So there's this block a person from leaving. They can feign a serious illness. Um, A couple of the ones that I've worked with have feigned a serious illness in order to try to bond the person to them or threaten suicide. Now, unfortunately, these behaviors tend to cause loved ones to step back or to withdraw, right? Because it's so chaotic, because it's so disorganized, oftentimes the loved one kind of steps back or is like, whoa, this is, this is intense, which is exactly what the borderline is trying to prevent. So it kind of becomes this self-feeding cycle in and of itself, right? That these behaviors make the person step back, which then they perceive as this threat of abandonment, which then ups the behaviors, right? Which gets the person to step back again. And so to them, it's true, right? Like these things are happening and this is a real threat because they're te- they're taking a step back or I feel distance happening or disengagement happening when I do these things. Now, with somebody under 18, we typically don't diagnose borderline personality disorder, but it does allow like if the symptoms have been present for more than a year, then you could diagnose somebody under 18 as having borderline personality disorder. The condition does tend to worsen as they age, but later in life, they can kind of get better on their own. Some studies say that that kind of just levels out a little bit as they age. Now we're talking more like in their, you know, late 40s, 50s kind of thing that it kind of just dissipates a little bit. Now, borderline personality disorder does, it requires a lot of energy to maintain that kind of hypervigilance. So we're not sure if aging itself decreases the energy that they have to maintain those behaviors. And that's kind of why it kind of levels out a little bit as they age. After about 20 years, as many as half of the individuals diagnosed no longer have a pattern of behavior that meets the full diagnostic criteria. So there may be still some dysfunctional behavior, right? But it's not as intense and they're not meeting the full diagnostic criteria. Another study showed that among an adult study group, 73% were in remission from symptoms after six years of them being diagnosed. So that kind of contradicts the thinking that personality disorder is largely unchanging or that personality, right, is largely unchanging. The kind of the thinking that 
with personality disorder specifically, right? That as this personality is developing, um, it doesn't necessarily change a whole lot. And so if this personality disorder gets wired into the personality, then that's going to be a lifelong thing. What they're finding with borderline personality disorder is that's not necessarily the case. Again, I think as we continue to look at trauma and understand the effect that trauma has on individuals, and as we continue to study and learn more about the brain, I think some of these, like we may get more information about some of these diagnoses. Borderline personality disorder is treatable because it, you know, it's rooted in trauma and attachment wounds, and those, those issues are treatable. In the U.S., 75% of individuals diagnosed with borderline personality disorder are female. There's a couple of things that are that are maybe controversial about the borderline personality disorder diagnosis. First of all, um, the diagnosis relies heavily on client report, right, and the clinician's observations. So again, the clinician isn't necessarily a primary person in their life. The family may also be giving information to the clinician and talking about this, right? But when we look at when we understand kind of in these um, dysfunctional families, um, ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Other Dysfunctions, really gave us some good information on this. When we look at dysfunctional families, right, they're going to have different roles. And one of those roles may be the black sheep, right? And so this may be how that black sheep in the family is expressing the problems or the chaos or the conflict that's present in the family system, and yet they're the one being diagnosed, right? And so the client's reporting it, the clinician's observing it. One of the things that I find, I talk to other therapists about this, is our borderline personality disorder can be given without a lot of information. So for example, if you're you know, a woman in your 20s and you land in the hospital after a suicide attempt, it is not uncommon at all for you to be diagnosed as borderline personality disorder. And yet, if you'll remember, only one of the criteria, right, had to do with self-injurious behaviors. And just a suicide attempt alone does not equal borderline. But we do have, you know, people who will come out of a hospital stay with that diagnosis and maybe they're treating therapist has never really been consulted, right? And the therapist is saying, this isn't the pattern of borderline. This isn't actually an accurate diagnosis, but it's given simply because they land in the hospital. So again, there's some controversy about this. There's controversy that it's a sexist diagnosis, right? There's some controversy in that we know that this is rooted in trauma and attachment wounds. And yet the people who you know, kind of created those attachment wounds or created those, that trauma, we're not necessarily diagnosing them, right? We're diagnosing the person who's having to deal with it. So there's also some thinking about like, how fair is that? Or, you know, is that, is that kind of a cruel diagnosis? And yet, if it truly is borderline, right? Which I, again, I will say, I think it's overly given now as a diagnosis, particularly to women, but if it's there, there is abuse that the people in relationships with the borderline experience. And so, you know, a lot of the work with people who are in relationships with the borderline have to have some really healthy and firm boundaries that they are always maintaining. And again, if the family is the one that created this trauma, then that can be difficult because if they're around the family or if the family kind of is around them and putting the family dysfunction onto this person, then it just gets reinforced over and over again. So again, is this a way of seeing women? Do we over diagnose, right? Like if somebody is dealing with betrayal trauma and uh, we see, you know, like who's doing the diagnosis, right? And to them, what is their emotional barometer, right? So for a clinician, they may think, wow, that's super extreme. Whereas another clinician may not see that as super extreme, right? It depends on like, I've known therapists, right? Not all therapists are healthy individuals. And so some therapists have a very low spectrum for emotions, right? They're pretty emotionally boundaried themselves, and maybe they are uncomfortable with their own emotions. And so you can see how 
if they're working with a client who who their um, spectrum of emotions is much bigger than the therapist, the therapist may be thinking about diagnosis, and that has more to do with the therapist and their comfort level than it actually do, does the diagnosis. We also have to look at right that how the patient who's diagnosed with this internalizes this. There is some thinking that it's a problem if there's no diagnosis, right? Then we don't see the problem the way that it is. And there's no diagnosis unless the clinician determines that there's a diagnosis. Like I was saying, self-injury and suicide attempts are seen as diagnostic, but we may overlook, you know, maybe one's place of employment. Like maybe they're a workaholic and this is causing damage to their relationships. It's interrupting sleep. It's causing physical stress. And overall, they're not, not doing very well. But we don't see our workaholism, right, as being self-injurious. We see that as maybe the cutting behaviors or the suicide attempts. So again, there, there also may be behaviors that are actually self-injurious that might, if we cast that net, right, then we may look at some male behavior and see that as self-injurious, but we tend to look and cast the net only looking at female behavior. And so we see that as diagnostic. Hopefully that makes sense where, you know, that that may also be something that's kind of gendered specific and, and how we see the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder is we see it through more typical female behaviors than we do typical male behaviors. As females and feminists started doing research on borderline personality disorder and really studying borderline personality disorder, an alternate perspective has emerged viewing the diagnosis as pathologizing the ways that women respond to gendered abuse and oppression, right? So borderline personality disorder can be applied to women who fail to live up to their gender roles because they express anger and aggression and they're not happy kind of with the roles that society has given them. Also, the diagnosis is given to women who conform too much by, you know, maybe they're they're going along, maybe they had kids and maybe they got married where that's not necessarily something they wanted to do. Um, and so, but they went along, right? They did what was expected of them. And then they internalize the anger and they express it through the self-focused injury behavior. So they may cut, they may attempt suicide, right? They may also even take it out on their kids. So there's kind of this bind for women, right? Where women with borderline personality disorder who engage in behavior that aren't stereotypically feminine behaviors, such as like hurting themselves, being angry, having a lot of sexual partners, they're cast in this archetype of the over-emotional kind of hysterical woman, right? And we and we do have to look at, I think this is a legitimate um, claim that they bring up when they're looking and studying borderline personality disorder. I think looking at the history kind of of how women have been dealt with in the mental health system, especially women who didn't just kind of fall into the patriarchal expectations, history hasn't been kind to them, right? And and so that's a different episode that we, we that I may do, but I think we have to we always have to look at history because that's how we got where we are currently. Like I said, uh, borderline is treatable. So um, types of treatment that are beneficial include DBT, that it's called uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, any trauma modality, so EMDR, neurofeedback, lifespan integration, in any trauma modality is also going to be helpful for borderline personality disorder. And a new one that's kind of been emerging over the last, I don't know, five, six years maybe, is narrative therapy it has proven to be effective in treating borderline. So narrative therapy asks the client to kind of retell the story of the problem. So we get the problem kind of in this story, which when you think about it, like that may actually be where it is, right? If this is coming from childhood trauma and attachment wounds. So the goal of therapy is not necessarily to reduce symptoms in narrative therapy or to increase the emotional regulation skills, but the goal of narrative therapy is to assist clients in generating narratives that feel truer and more meaningful to them than the problem-saturated account, right? Borderline personality disorder, if you if a person has that disorder, right, it's a very 
problem-laden diagnosis and it makes it all about them and says that they are dysfunctional. Whereas narrative therapy kind of gets it out into the story and talks about like the different stories and how those stories may have happened to them, right? But it gets it kind of out of the self. So talking about narcissism, like I said, we've we've done several episodes. I've had guests on. I've had done one just by myself about narcissism. If you haven't listened to those and you're particularly interested in narcissism, that will be a good, those will be good ones to go back and listen to. So I just want to add a couple of things that I haven't added or said already about narcissism is with narcissism. I've had, I had one person email me and talk about this idea of healthy narcissism. So some psychodynamic approaches to narcissism are based on the concept of narcissism as a love of self. And these approaches reason that since some love of self is good, there's such a thing as healthy narcissism and that the disease of narcissism results from an excess of self-love. So one of the things I would say about this, right, is if you've listened to the other episodes about narcissism, narcissists don't love themselves too much, right? Underneath, behind that neurologically boundary person, they actually despise themselves, right? They have deep wounds around the core of the self where there's this questioning of whether or not they're lovable, whether or not they're actually good, but almost all their energy is devoted to maintaining a false image that covers the self-loathing. So the classical mythological definition of narcissism as self-love leaves unexplained the significant feature of the disease. This feature is a total dichotomy of treatment of others by narcissists, right? For most people, if I have this love of self, right, and I'm, I have acceptance about who I am, good, bad, and otherwise, right, I think that I'm good enough, then that doesn't get in the way of me loving another person and being happy when things go well in another person's life. It doesn't get in the way of me caring for other people, right? But for the narcissist, that love of self is at the expense of loving anybody else, right? So I don't, I wouldn't say that this idea of healthy narcissism is actually true, right? However, I do know I've worked with individuals before who are narcissistic, who when they are told that the narcissism is talked about with them, um, they're really happy about it, right? That they, they don't have a problem being labeled narcissistic and they think that's great. So again, just something to think about with narcissism. Now, narcissism is one of the most abusive of the personality disorders. And I think one of the reasons why is that with borderline, right, it's kind of evident that the person has problems. Like for the person experience the abuse, and I don't want to minimize the abuse that people in relationships with borderlines experience, but they kind of know it's not them, right? They know that this person's overly dramatizing, overly hypersensitive and reacting to situations, right? So even though the abuse is there and it's always, abuse is always harmful, we kind of know that the person with a borderline personality disorder is the one with the problem, not the self, right? Whereas with narcissism, they make you believe that the problem's with you and they are very skilled at making you believe that everybody would agree with them. So the partner might have a hard time realizing that it's not about them, right? Because of the gaslighting that's going on. A lot of times with like with borderline, I, I don't know that they're as functional to gaslight as effectively as narcissists are. If you're in a relationship with a narcissist, right, you have a hard time realizing that the future with a narcissist holds a life of terror and partners usually try to gut it out, right? They try to go to therapy. They try to make things work. They read so many books trying to repair the marriage, not recognizing that this is life with a narcissist, right? This isn't a marital conflict or this isn't a marital dysfunction that therapy is going to fix. So it kind of sets the stage because the partner of a narcissist kind of is is trying to gut it out or work it out. Um, it sets the stage for the narcissist to work on an extended campaign of reality distortion and brainwashing of the partner. 
Right. So it's not uncommon for me to get partners of narcissists in, especially if the male's the narcissist. <clears throat> we talked about in one of our episodes kind of the differences between genders, male narcissist versus female narcissist. So this dynamic, like I I hear often from female partners of narcissists who will come in and they say, like, I think I'm a bitch. Like I I think like I just am. And when we start to break it down, that's not actually the case, but they have believed that and they've been told that, right? And they've believed that often for years. So what we have to realize, right, is the life of a narcissist is a life of lies. What they are, what they might care about, what feelings they have, their overriding fear, it's all a mystery, right? Because that's so held back behind that boundary that they erect. So by the time it becomes obvious that things are never going to get better and the situation exceeds normal human endurance, the partner's quite seriously confused about what reality is. So at this point, exiting the abuse means exiting the relationship, which can be a threat to the narcissist. Now, I've had clients where the divorce is long and it's drawn out and it's awful trying to divorce the narcissist, right? But I've also worked with people where the divorce went fairly quickly. So why? What's the difference? I think if it goes quickly, right, the narcissist has decided that they don't need this person anymore to help them keep the their image, right? So some of the things that I've seen just in my caseload over the years is that maybe the narcissist believes that he or she has done a good enough job at making everybody think that the partner's horrible, right? So they may have been talking negatively about the partner for years, and they believe that everybody's going to believe that, right? And so in that situation, getting out of the relationship and getting out quickly is actually in the narcissistic mind, the better thing because the person isn't helping to maintain their flawless image. So the divorce doesn't necessarily reflect negatively onto the narcissist. However, that doesn't mean that once the divorce is final, if it's quick, right, that you're done with the narcissist, especially if you have children with them. There's going to be a cycle, I think, in the episode with M. Capito, she talked about this. Um, and so there's going to be a cycle in which they return to you and th they're returning to you in a way for them to get a power hit. So leaving and exiting the relationship with a narcissist, right, requires clarity of thought, which oftentimes the narcissist has worked to destroy. And we move kind of from this fairy tale life where getting into the relationship with a narcissist was this fairy tale, right? We talk about love bombing. We talk about how they will often tell the person they want to be in a relationship with that they're the greatest thing ever. And then all of a sudden there's that whiplash, right? Of all of a sudden this, this partner can no longer do anything right. So it moves from a fairy tale to kind of a Brothers Grimm's fairy tale, right? Where there's this need to exit the relationship. As I said, narcissism and borderline are both issues of hypersensitivity. So at their core, they consider themselves unworthy, deeply flawed, unlovable, despicable, and they become hypervigilant in their defense against perceived threats of abandonment. So in this way, both are similar in that they sense imminent threats in events of the smallest significance. But the fear for narcissists is this general fear of being found out and found out that they're not what they portray in their image, whereas borderlines have the fear around what will happen once they're found out, right? So borderlines are kind of like, yeah, I know that I'm despicable or unlovable or deeply flawed, and everybody else is going to find out about it too. And th the finding out isn't necessarily the fear. It's what happens when they find out, which is they will leave and they will abandon me and I will be on my own. So... Oftentimes for a narcissist, we've talked again about this protective shield that they are able to construct that nobody gets through. And the narcissist is going to be able to stand their ground. They'll fight back. They're going to gaslight against this revelation of a flaw. 
whereas borderlines kind of lack this outer shield. So their fears are actually closer to the core and it very much triggers this dread of abandonment. So borderlines will often concede defeat as soon as a flaw is detective, and then they immediately react to the consequence that they are expecting, even if it's not accurate and that's not what's going to happen, right? They are reacting to the consequence that they truly believe is going to come. So for both of them, the fears aren't rooted in a rational thought process, but it kind of originates in this lower level of processing that doesn't really pass through that prefrontal cortex, right? It's not, it's not passing through rational thought. It's not passing even really through a thought process, right? But this reaction is happening more on a primitive level in the brain. So narcissists are going to attempt to cope and to adjust and to up their strategy. Their reactions may be brutal, but to the narcissist, their reactions are stabilizing, right? It's eliminating the threat. It's creating a space in which they're able to function and view themselves within this image that they've constructed. Borderlines are much more likely to kind of collapse into despair. So borderlines tend to have a lifelong pattern of seeking others to care for them. And they may find this in intimate relationships. Uh, they may seek this through frequent requests for medical care, right? Like nurses and doctors who are caring for them. Where a narcissist is going to appear strong and capable and independent, even though they're not really, borderlines often appear vulnerable, weak, and in need of help and support. So borderlines tend to give an impression of struggling through life, whereas most narcissists do not appear to struggle, right? They appear to have it all together. They appear to know what they're doing and to be extremely confident people. And again, I wanna say that these aren't necessarily as clear cut as I've just talked about. So borderlines can have what is referred to as this high functioning borderline phases, right? Now, often you'll find that the disordered person is functioning under a narcissistic dynamic during those high functioning times, right? So there may be times where they're functioning at this lower level of coping and the borderline, but then they may have times in which they appear to be doing really well, right? And so some people are questioning, like, is there this, for some borderlines, right? Is there this kind of uh, percolating or, or moving back and forth, right? Through borderline. And then they have these high functioning periods where it's really more of some narcissism and they've been able to protect themselves through more of a narcissistic order of behavior. And then they revert back to borderline. So based on an event, right? The event will kind of push them back into the borderline behavior. So again, some questions that are still out there about borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. Now at the opposite extreme is the disorder that's most often known as sociopathy, right? That that's most often what we call it. The clinical name for this disorder is antisocial personality disorder. And it also goes by another name as psychopathy. I've had some people explain it. This kind of makes sense to me where I've heard one thing that like sociopathy and psychopathy are used interchangeably. But I've also heard people describe it as like psychopathy is um, a more dangerous version of the sociopathy. I've also had it explained to me where psychopaths are more charming. Um, they're more engaging with people, even though they're really not engaging them, right? Because that takes like some emotion and some sensitivity, but they can be more dynamic and they, they can be more charming, right? Which means they can also be more manipulative. Whereas sociopaths don't quite have the social skills or the charm. They may not be as good looking, right? They may not have been as popular. They may not have been able to kind of fit into society as much. So I've also had it explained that way. But these individuals have a huge fear dynamic missing from their psychological makeup. They're often described as having a brain function deficit, you know, so there is some thinking that maybe part of their brain that houses kind of the emotions and what we would call the conscience that that wasn't fully developed. And so there's a deficit there. They lack all sense of value and concern for other people. So while most people have a natural fear of causing harm to others, a sociopath really doesn't have that concern or that fear. It simply doesn't matter to them what happens to other people. And 
Unfortunately, this does include family members and intimate partners. Now, they may appear to care about others or appear to fear hurting others, but really the fear is entirely self-centered. So a sociopath is not at all bothered by the hurt felt by someone else, and any effort they make to avoid such hurt is simply to make their own lives easier. So there's a book that came out a couple years ago called um, Confessions of a Sociopath, and it's by an author who's using a pseudonym, M.E. Thomas. And she kind of pokes fun at her narcissism and slash sociopathy and removes her mask of carefully crafted personality traits in an attempt to prove that sociopathy is not simply a disorder of serial killers, but one that exists on a spectrum. And she would point out that sociopathy plagues a large portion of successful, well-adjusted people. And we are learning that that is accurate. Now, in the book, The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout, she warns that sociopaths make up 4%, or that's 1 in 25, right? That's To me, when I read that book and heard that statistic, I was like, that's a staggering number. So 4% or one in 25 of the U.S. population. Now, the journalist John Ronson, he detailed his search for psychopathy from prisons to boardrooms, and he developed the psychopath test. And you can go online and you can find the psychopath test and you can see what questions there are. You can take it in case you're concerned, but you wouldn't really be concerned, right? Maybe you're taking it for somebody that you think that might be the case for. And a September 2012 study ranked U.S. presidents in order of their possessions of a psychopathic trait. Now, this doesn't mean that they were psychopaths, right? They they weren't being diagnosed as psychopaths. But one of the traits in in that test, the psychopath test, is this trait called fearless dominance, right? That they have no problem dominating. There's no fear over dominating. And actually the two U.S. presidents that top the list are some of the favorite U.S. presidents, I would say. And again, this was, you know, several years ago. So this hasn't included the last couple of presidents, but the presidents that top the list were Teddy Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy. So this brings us to talk about, you know, sometimes we'll talk about uh, violent psychopaths, or the nonviolent psychopath. And nonviolent psychopaths would make up the majority of people with antisocial personality disorder. So Robert Hare, he was a criminal psychologist, and he developed the PCLR, which is the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, to determine whether a criminal is suitable for parole or they possess such a danger to society that they deserve the death penalty. And he was quoted as saying, you're four times more likely to find a psychopath at the top of the corporate ladder than you are walking around the janitor's office. So there is kind of this belief currently in the U.S., right, that the sociopaths are running the world in the U.S., that they are making our political decisions and creating policy, that they are running the corporations that have a big impact on policy, right? And so there is this kind of notion that some of what's going wrong in the United States right now is that the psychopaths are running things. So some examples of serial killers, right, would we often think of Ted Bundy, right? He's a very well-known serial killer and he very much was a psychopath. A lot of people would describe him as um, handsome and good looking and charming. He would have been, right, the violent psychopath. But you also have to think of people like Bernie Madoff, right? Like he was just as much on the spectrum as Ted Bundy was. And one of the questions when when Bernie Madoff, it's been reported that when Bernie Madoff was meeting like with a psychologist or something, one of the questions he was asking, right, is am I a sociopath? And the I, I think if I remember correctly, the, the psychologist who was meeting with him did tell him that he wasn't. However, when you look at his behavior, right, when you look at his ability to completely rip off people and rip them off in ways that like their life savings, right, their retirement, there were some older people who their whole life crumbled because of what he was doing. And he knew he was doing that, right? It's not like he accidentally did this. And his behaviors, I mean, it caused one of his sons to commit suicide. Like the impact of his behavior was devastating. 
And Bernie Madoff knew that. Like he knew that it would be devastating and he did not care. So he impacted people's lives. Some people argue as much as Ted Bundy impacted people's lives. So there's also some thinking, right, that says this came out of uh, the book, The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout. She talked about how culture does have an impact on how the behavior is expressed. So she said, you know, in different countries and different cultures, this antisocial personality disorder occurs about the same rate, right? That there's about 4% of the population, regardless of where this is located, that have these diagnosis. However, she talked about like in some cultures like India, let's say, or let's say some of the Asian cultures, right, where there's this emphasis on the group, right, that the group is more important than the individual, that how the sociopathy is expressed is a little more tapped down. It's a little more tame uh, just because it wouldn't be acceptable, right? And the community, they wouldn't be able to function as well in the community if they expressed these traits the way that they could in societies where kind of the individual is focused more than the group, right? So in the U.S., there's a heavy emphasis on the individual, right? Last summer, we had a couple of girls from India come stay with us, and they were from a very rural part. I understand that there's parts of India that are very, um, like kind of common with other first world countries, right? But they were from a very, very rural, um, part of India where it was still, still very common in their cultures that, you know, daughters were getting married by 14, by 15. And it was just kind of expected because that was what was best for the family. Right. So that's kind of that emphasis on the group culture, right, that that the group is more important than what's best for the individual. And whereas in the U.S., right, we have more like what's good for the individual goes. And if it's harmful for the group, we don't necessarily I mean, we it's not like we're OK if it's harmful to the group. Right. But when you look at like Martha Stout was pointing out, when you look at that sociopaths tend to get promoted more, right? They tend to kind of climb the ladder, so to speak. And this is because they are willing to do things that other people just wouldn't do, right? Their conscience kind of holds them back from doing that. But in societies where the individual and and being your best self or all that kind of stuff is predominant, then those behaviors are going to come out at a higher rate than in other cultures. Now, If you're in an abusive relationship that is described by one of these personality disorders, right, this may not have happened just by happenstance. And sometimes this is hard truth to kind of swallow or it's a hard truth to bring in and examine and look at, right? But this may be a result of living with or growing up around a person with one of these disorders. So oftentimes when I'm working with a partner of an, like, let's say a partner with a narcissist or a partner with a borderline or a partner who has, you know, the nonviolent psychopath. First of all, like we have to work on safety. We have to work on boundaries. We have to work on them being able to spot this, right? And to know what it is so that they can protect themselves emotionally and psychologically. But then the next work, we kind of have to look at and say, how did you get in this relationship with this person? Because for every single one, there were some signs, right? When we start looking back, there were some signs, maybe subtle, but there were some signs. I haven't talked, and this is just my experience, but I haven't talked with one partner of this person who hasn't said there was this one time. Or there were a couple of things that stood out to me, right? But they, in essence, kind of talked themselves out of it. And again, we have to look at, like, why did you talk yourself out of that? Why was that small red flag not a huge red flag? So one of the things I think that can help explain this, right, is the concept of um, trauma recreation or trauma bonding. So... When I explain this, I talk about how our brain likes puzzles and it especially likes to solve puzzles, right? It likes a challenge. It likes to be able to solve and have victory over the challenge, right? So 
Let's say that your parent had any of these, right? Borderline, narcissism, sociopathy. This is going to have effect on you as a child, right? In some way or another, the message you're going to get as a child is that you're not good enough, right? If the parent doesn't believe that they're not good enough, or in the case of antisocial personality disorder, they just don't really care about other people, right? On the developing child, there's going to be this message that leaves a big question mark about how lovable and how valuable they are as a, as a person. So oftentimes, like I said, the brain likes puzzles and it likes to solve puzzles, right? So part of their, let's call it an arousal template is going to be like, they might get into a relationship with somebody who's similar to the parent that they couldn't quite, they couldn't quite attach to, right? They couldn't quite get them to love them. They couldn't quite get them to value them. So the brain thinks, hey, well, this person was kind of like dad or, hey, this person is kind of like mom. And maybe if we get into a relationship with this person who seems to love me, right? Because at the beginning, it always looks like they love you and they seem to love me and I can figure that out and I can get love and I can get worth and I can get value from this person, then maybe that solves the previous problem and the previous puzzle of how I couldn't figure out how to get that from my parent, right? And so in many ways, the brain's still trying to figure out this puzzle and it's trying to solve the puzzle. And what happens, right, is there's more trauma reenactment, right? So I made trauma bond to somebody based on my trauma, right? I bond to the person who's similar to the parent that I couldn't quite get who um, attached to me. And so I bond with somebody similar. And then what happens is the trauma of my childhood, the trauma of that relationship simply reenacts itself. And again, the brain's continuing to try to solve the puzzle, right? So if you get out of one of these relationships, the tendency to get into another one doesn't diminish just because you've been in one. Right. You may have heard some of the one of the guests on one of the podcasts talked about marrying the same psychopath twice. That's actually not that uncommon. Right. That they either get into a relationship with another one or the same one. And again, I think this is explained when we look at the brain trying to solve these puzzles. So unless you've kind of deconstructed the puzzle and you see it for what it is, then the pattern is more likely to repeat itself. The other thing that I wanted to say, I think it's really difficult for us as human beings, right? And as average human beings to wrap our head around the fact that there are dangerous people that walk among us and they can look very normal, but they're very dangerous. And I think, you know, we, again, we like to believe in the good of other people. We like to believe, um, we like to see an individual as a person, right? Not as a diagnosis or not as a behavior. We like to see them as a person and we like to believe in the good of people. And I think we have to start recognizing and wrapping our head around the fact that there are dangerous people and to see them as good, right? Or to try to understand them or believe that they're going to be fixed actually puts us in a dangerous place. And I think we have to recognize, you know, maybe where in our background that comes from, that I can see somebody who's dangerous and I lean in or I move towards instead of just moving away. So anyway, I hope these episodes on the personality disorders, on narcissism particularly, have been helpful. Probably most people, right? I mean, when you just even look at the percentages, most people have come encounter with or have or or know have in their life right somebody who suffers from one of these personality disorders and i think it's our job to increase our own emotional intelligence so that we can protect and keep ourselves safe at the end of this episode i want to remind you that your story matters remember there's something meaningful in every chapter don't wait to share your story till it's finished until next time jackie the legal stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. 
LaPrayer the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.